song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is How Wrestling Explains the World. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, I am looking forward to this one uh, very much. I was excited the second you told me we were doing this. In fact, uh, it was one of my favorite uh, wrestlers of the week back during the uh, original Juice Make Sugar run. Speaking of which, yes, that I, I didn't even think of that. Um, so I got the Juice Make Sugar archive back uh you wrote like one of the first articles you wrote in 2013 was about vader he has always been an obsession of ours along with nature documentaries i was looking through one of the old we uh dave and i used to do a column where we would have a difference of opinion but it was mostly just like us having text exchanges on gchat so we could turn them into an article and in one of the articles like five years ago we're talking about how nature documentaries and wrestling have a lot in common so i thought that was We established our uh, we established our main themes early. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Vader uh, is the topic of this week's episode. Uh, we jumped the gun a little bit, but uh, that's because we're so excited. I love Vader. Vader is one of, if not the best super heavyweight of all time, like the Brock Lesnar size uh, guys. You had to name a wrestler where you would have to watch any random match of theirs. Like, who's the person who you think you'd have the most chance of, of liking that match? You know, I would definitely say Vader. I think Vader had kind of the the highest average performance for me. We are actually going to change it up a little bit this week. We are going to announce next week's how wrestling explains the world topic uh, at the top of the show, which is horror movies, a uh, slasher movie specifically. So movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th and stuff like that. And the reason we picked Vader as kind of the supplement to that was that he's a monster and a heel at the same time. And that's very, very rare. He's a very rare specimen in the history of wrestling. Yeah, definitely a very, very special character, like both from the, the very beginning of his career, you know, up through the time he uh, got got feuding, uh, got done feuding with The Undertaker. I think towards the end of his career, that kind of monster mystique had, had faded, you know, uh, by the time he was talking about being a big fat piece of shit. Uh, I'm sure we'll get there later. <laughs> but uh, but for the majority of his career, just, yeah, an, an incredible movie monster type heel who really came from the era or was born in the era of the great movie monsters in kind of the mid to late 80s. Yeah, and uh, you actually uh, are more familiar with the history of Japan, which is where really, I mean, he was in the AWA as Baby Bull, but... Uh, he really came into his own in Japan, right? I want to back up a little bit and just kind of give some context about sort of how being a foreign wrestler in Japan in 1987 worked or like what that looked like before we really like get to the birth of of Vader. I just want to like back up and provide a little context. In uh, 72, in 1972, All Japan and New Japan form, they like split uh, the existing company uh, uh, it was called J- Japan Wrestling Alliance, uh, which had been, you know, uh, Rikido Zan's company for so many years. So in 72, All Japan and New Japan are forming, kind of splitting the Japanese market. And for the next decade and a half, basically, uh, you know, New Japan is anchored by Inoki and All Japan is anchored by Baba. And basically the formula that both guys are working with, which was also, you know, Rikido Zan's formula, um, is basically that they are acting out um, the embodiment of the Japanese refusal to die post-World War II. Like, that is the main psychology of pro wrestling uh, in Japan from the 1950s with Rikido Zan, like, all the way into the time of Vader, into the early 90s. That's really the formula, is that it's all about, you know, the big monster foreigners, uh, you know, getting a lot of heat on the Japanese guys and the Japanese guys getting their comeback and, and you know, always winning at the end and showing that they have this great spirit uh, even in the even in the face of the messed up stuff that foreigners have done to them. So wrestling in Japan was very specifically nationalistic and very specifically about um, telling a certain morality tale about the, the supremacy of Japanese culture and the idea of resisting foreign influences. And that's even more so than American wrestling's, uh, because we talked about it in the Cold War episode. American wrestling is jingoistic, but I don't... Th- I, I, it depends on how you feel about that word. Uh, nationalistic has a much more sinister tone to me. Jingoistic seems like it is, uh, for lack of a better term, hillbilly shooting off guns and saying you uh, chanting USA. Where like nationalism is, uh, you know, like dangerous. Well, it, it's like the result of a country that's in a cultural uh, identification crisis, so to speak. Like Japan had been like a very proud. Um, uh, country and especially took uh, believed in itself strongly 
you know, as a as a war making entity, like they believed in themselves very strongly as warriors. It's like stereotypically a big part of the Japanese male identity historically. I guess male identities like worldwide historically, but I mean there is definitely that kind of like samurai warrior culture in Japan. And and in Japan very specifically. Um yeah, like you said, with the samurai orc uh, culture. Uh, and I think, um, and just really quick, uh, Ricky Dozen is the basically the founder of Japanese-style wrestling. Yeah, so after World War II, right, you have tons of Americans in Japan. And, you know, Japanese baseball really started around the same time because a lot of the American businessmen who were there, you know, uh, doing very well off of the kind of reconstruction of the era and um, a lot of the veterans who were still there on bases, they started kind of introducing parts of American culture like baseball and wrestling. And Ricky Dozan was um, a super popular, super over sumo wrestler. And some of the Americans who first started going there, who, you know, who uh, were connected to the NWA, they kind of identified him as kind of the guy to make the original Japanese superstar. And so the, uh, the NWA guys in conjunction with JWA that I was talking about before, they basically for the rest of his life, uh, kind of had this formula where, yeah, you know, Ricky Dozan was the big Japanese cultural hero, the, the sumo, like what better embodiment of, you know, a Japanese male warrior in kind of the modern era. And he would, you know, take on the foreigners from, from the NWA, like he would take on, you know, Fez and Gotch and those kind of guys. So yeah, he was, he was really Hulk Hogan long before Hulk Hogan. He was like the bigger than life figure that kind of embodied, you know, the, 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 positive male traits of that culture uh, and was also a legitimately accomplished athlete in the way that the NWA wrestlers at the time, you know, were typically shooters. Yeah, exactly. It's a very, it's a very different style. Uh, and from it would come a very different style. Uh, we, we haven't spent that much time on Japanese wrestling. We will definitely going forward, especially with these addendum or supplemental episodes, whatever you want to call them. Um, or how big van vader explains wrestling uh for japanese wrestling at that point like you said the the world of japanese wrestling he's coming into is this hyper nationalistic or hyper nationalistic makes it sound a little harsher than it actually very nationalistic very pro japan world and enoki uh, in particular uh is a very popular athlete in japan not like not necessarily at the level of of Ricky Dozan, but but very popular, right? At that point, at least. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And he was like a massive cultural hero as well. Like it used to be a thing in Japan that like it was an honor to be slapped in the face by him. <laughs> like that's literally like an example of of what a big culture hero was. Um, you know, the, the the concept of bushido uh, is very important. The, the fighting spirit, as it's usually translated in English, like when they talk about AJ Styles, they usually say fighting spirit or uh, Mara Ronello even occasionally sometimes say bushido. But that never say die, you know, a refusal to, to give up. And yeah, Inoki, you know, embodied that. And he, he was so popular, he moved into politics later on mm-hmm. in his life in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, that's what I meant is that he eventually becomes this like, transcendent he was already a transcendent athlete it becomes this transcendent like cultural icon in the way that wayne gretzky or bret hart that type of like representative of the country itself and in the literal sense for him yeah exactly so it's interesting because you have that culture that established way that wrestling worked in japan and, you know, that had been, you know, kind of working approximately the same way, you know, since the 70s for, for more than a decade. But then starting in the mid 80s, you have this shakeup when guys started jumping back and forth, very similar to the 90s in the U.S. So generally, like Baba in all Japan had his foreigners who were generally the top NWA guys because uh, the funks would book Americans for him. So because, you know, Terry and Dory were so well respected and so powerful in the NWA, Baba usually got the top picks of uh, the NWA. Uh, Inoki had a relationship with the, the WWWF, and you know, he, he got the title uh, once from uh, Backland on you know, kind of a fluky thing that they don't really acknowledge anymore. But like Baba had NWA title reigns, Inoki had his WWWF title reign. But in, uh, I think it's 85, uh, uh, Bruiser Brody and Abdullah the Butcher uh, jumped ship from one company to the other mid tour. And that was really the beginning of the kind of big super over American top guys in Japan, making tons and tons of money. Like some of those guys for Baba in the mid to late eighties are making, you know, 10 to 15 grand in 1980s money per week. Jesus. Um, yeah. So, so, so there's this kind of crazy free agent market 
uh, layered on top of that traditional Japanese cultural structure. And uh, because Baba pays so well and because Baba is so respected by the top brass of the NWA, you know, like the Funks and the Crockett's and all that, like Baba has a much better reputation and he is definitively getting the better foreigners. Um, so basically what happened was Anoki signed Brody away, uh, you know, to try to get his big foreigner and it just blew up in his face. Brody, uh, Brody rather Brody was like tough to work with. And, um, he got involved in shoots with a couple of guys and stuff. So, uh, you know, Anoki fired him or whatever. And Anoki was basically looking in 1987 to create his own bruiser Brody because the A plus American talent was mostly over in all Japan. So that's really what Vader was, is Vader's this ultimate kind of villain for a Japanese hero to fight. And he's also the response to the uh, the, the current free agent market in Japanese wrestling. It's really, really interesting. That's a hugely important idea. The, the switching a lot of, and I think this is almost accidental, but a lot of the stories that you see in American wrestling manifest themselves several years before in Japanese wrestling. Some of it's because of just how like important it is to the culture uh, in terms of money. And it's treated much differently than it is here. Right, Dave, there's a different, there's a hugely different set of expectations in terms of presentation and stuff like that. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, just to run across your quick, like stereotypes of Japanese wrestling, right. Is it, it's more serious. It's more treated as a sport. It's more covered by journalists in the way that, Journalists cover sports here in the U.S. Um, and people, when they watch the matches, they, you know, there's the stereotype of the quiet Japanese crowd, which definitely in the last couple of years since the Bullet Club and anything, that, you know, that's starting to move in a different direction. But, but stereotypically, the Japanese fans were like studying the match. And that's why there was such an emphasis on like mat holds and not just doing high spots, but really getting from thing to thing uh, or move to move, I should say, thing is such a bad word, but getting from move to move or spot to spot in really realistic, but also interesting and innovative ways. So the crowds would watch the matches very, very carefully and the press would cover the matches like they, like they were a big deal. So there was definitely a lot of, I guess, reverence is the word. There was a greater reverence for wrestling. Yeah, that is, that is the, that is the perfect word. And, uh, because of that, um, so, uh, Vader's debut uh, debut. Uh, w when I read it, um, it reminded me of like a Money in the Bank cash in, uh, in the sense that uh, it seems like he just kind of shows up and challenges Anoki. Is that is that correct? Am I understanding? basically what happens so i did a little research into this earlier this week and um there was a guy named takeshi katano and he was a japanese stand-up comedian at the time and as far as i could kind of figure out through my research he was basically very similar to jimmy hart in memphis where he was like this obnoxious heel manager who would just kind of bring in hired guns so you know uh uh, Jimmy Hart would be bringing in people to feud with Lawler. And I think at the time, Takeshi Kitano was bringing in guys to feud with Anoki. So kind of like, you know, same thing with like Lou Albano or The Wizard or whoever uh, in the WWF. So I think it was Kitano had some kind of deal in the storyline where, yeah, one of his men had like a future opportunity against Anoki. And Anoki had uh, just done a long title defense against Ricky Choshu. Like I think they had gone close to an hour. And so then this manager guy, uh, Katano comes out and says like, okay, it's time, you know, the match is now. And then that's, that's Vader's debut. And yeah. The crowd does not react well. It, uh, there, so I don't know, cause it's hard to tell cause it's wrestling, whether or not this is what actually happened, but, uh, apparently there's a riot and they're banned from it's the sumo hall, right? Yeah, the, the real Goku Sumo Hall, which was like there. That's like if the WWF had been banned from Madison Square Garden. Like that was their <laughs> building. Yeah, supposedly, um, so in the arena at the time, you sat on floor cushions. And according to a story Vader likes to tell, so, I mean, think of, take it with a grain of salt. It's a story a wrestler likes to tell. Uh, but supposedly there were people in the crowd who were picking up their, their seat cushions off the floor and were like setting them on fire and stuff. And it, <laughs> I went back and I watched the footage this week. And they do get really tight on what's happening in the ring after the finish. So it is possible, actually, like, you know, kind of kind of knowing your TV editing and knowing when they're trying to work around screwy stuff in the background. It definitely is conceivable that there was a small scale disturbance going on. 
there was at least one person that was so pissed they said something on fire. Yeah, and then it's and then the the young boys get in the ring, but it looks really really realistic because they like don't run at him and like feed him for wrestling moves. They just like circle around him awkwardly, and he just kind of like bare paws them away and stuff. And eventually, they just all give up and get out of the ring because he's so scary, and like none of them can even get close to him. Really, a great match, and it was just like if you want to talk about execution and being effective, it's maybe one of the most effective matches of all time, and. That's really where that's really why the Vader character has so much juice, because from the very beginning, he just had so much behind him. Like Enoki beat everybody like Enoki changed Muhammad Ali's career uh, by kicking him in his leg repeatedly. Like that's how dominant and how important Enoki was and how seriously he took getting over on everybody, you know? Yeah. But it's like Vader just, it's like a three minute American style job match, like squash, which they weren't doing at the time. You know, it's like, Enoki jumps Vader at the bell, and Vader's no cells of strikes. He press slams him like right away. He puts him in the tree of woe and gives him this awesome spear while he's upside down from like a three point stance. And then it's just like a lariat, a series of elbow drops, running power slam one, two, three. And like it was, you know, compared to the very serious kind of martial arts oriented style that Enoki uh, really had been, you know, feeding people. Because like, what do they always say in wrestling? It's what you condition the crowd to. But in comparison to that, it was just like, it legitimately was a shocking moment in wrestling. And he, and the thing with Vader is he looks more so than almost anybody else up to that point, even like a Bruiser Brody, like a monster. He's just this giant, freakishly athletic human being that clearly, at least in character, I don't know what he was in like in real life, um, is like a like a violent bear like the character gets smarter but he never loses that like brutality and that's i think the most important thing to understand about vader and why vader works so well is he's like a really violent ballerina <laughs> i like um once again this is a story that vader likes to tell and i kind of googled this and i couldn't really necessarily confirm it anywhere but who knows but the story vader tells is that the way enoki sold the character to him was it, um, so supposedly back in, you know, a very long time ago, uh, in Japan, they would like settle, uh, disputes between towns by like each town would select a representative and those representatives would fight each other to the death and whichever representative won, like their town won the dispute. And supposedly the story is that the Vader character, the character upon whom Vader is based was one of those warriors. And, and in one of these intra-town disputes, he, uh, he fights his opponent for whatever, you know, three days, five days, 40 days, give, you know, whatever your favorite number is. But he fights his opponent continuously for however many days. And, you know, neither one of them ever gives up and they, they die in each other's exhausted arms. You know, neither one of them having won or lost. So so the character is both, you know, a, a huge, incredible monster. And there's also the idea that he's just this um this unbeatable force who you're going to grapple with forever. And he would rather, you know, go to his death from exhaustion than give in to you. It, it's really, it's, it, he's a really powerful character, which I think is why, you know, 30 years after his debut, we're still talking about him so much. Yeah. And what's incredible on top of all of that, uh, in, in top of this incredible character, the reason it works is because Vader is one of the best heels ever. Like he is such a good He's both in the ring, one of the great heels in the history of wrestling in terms of building up anticipation for the babyface to get their comeback, the ways in which he is brutal, uh, the spots he has that no one else has that are that make you want him to be on the side of the angels. Like he is this perfectly constructed heel. Uh, and I think that's what comes across with the the part of the young boys surrounding him is like, he doesn't care. He's going to hurt all of them because he's a, he's not just, it's not in the sense, I guess the way Anoki tells it, it is in the sense of like, he has a code. No, he's just a monster who wants to destroy. Yeah. A hundred percent. No, he's a, a big, scary son of a gun. And as you say, he, he definitively uh, looks the part 100% and just pulls it through and uh, so, I mean, from there, it's like he and it's also the idea of just like bringing someone in like truly on top. It just like doesn't happen anymore. And he's the first uh, foreign non-Japanese 
champion, right, for New Japan? Yeah, he was the first ever um, a foreign IWGP heavyweight champion, and he was uh, the third ever champion, the third ever person to hold that title. So he was definitely one of the people who really kind of helped establish that title that once again, 30 years later, is, is one of the most sought-after prizes uh, in the game, so to speak. But but from 89 to 92, I mean, he had an incredible run in New Japan. He was basically um, feuding with all the guys who Inoki had chosen to replace him because that's when Inoki kind of stepped away and got into politics. So he feuded extensively with Ricky Choshu and Tatsuji Fujinami and Shinya Hashimoto. So all those kind of hand-picked top-level guys, uh, he was in charge really of getting them over in the way Inoki had gotten people over in the, or sorry, getting them over in the way Inoki had been over in the past. Like he was the guy who got you over as the guy who fought the foreign monsters. And at the same time, (laughs) sorry, no, I just like the idea of Noki letting somebody else get over. It's just really (laughs) funny. And then at the same time too, he was also a, he was a big star in Germany at the time. I mean, Otto Vons at the CWA, the catch wrestling association, he was doing tours with them and was super successful in, in that promotion. Cause I mean, if you know what Otto Vons looks like, you know why he would want to push Leon white. Um, so, so before he shows up in WCW full time in 92, he's like already a super world traveled main eventer. Who's, who's been with all the top guys in new Japan and a lot of the top guys in Europe. And, and already they were kind of starting to cool him down because like in 1992, he becomes a tag team champion. So it is kind of, he's like dropped down from that tier of, you know, someone who's in the regular main event rotation. And I think that's kind of what motivated him to, to move his business full time to the U S you know, he was, he was just on tippy top for basically five years from 87 to 92 in Japan. And I, I, I bet even if you didn't account for inflation, if you added up all the paychecks he got in that time, I bet the numbers would be very impressive. I bet they'd be in the in the top 25%, or I should say maybe the top 20% of, of five-year runs all time. Yeah, he was a an enormous star, and it translated in a way that was kind of surprising, in, at least in the sense that they establish him very early on. He, he has a... a First match with Tom Zank, uh, rest in peace, uh, the Z-Man, uh, and uh, God, oh God, uh, he just runs right through Tom Zank, but in a way that you don't really see guys his size do it, and in that way, he's a, he is like a revelation for American audiences in the two minutes he has with Tom Zank in 1990, where he just runs right through him. He just looks bigger and stronger. And Jim Ross in particular does an amazing job at putting him over. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, Ross, Ross is the best at putting over big football players, right? I think everybody knows that, <laughs> but, but yeah, he always seemed to have a real passion for Vader when Ross talked about being like, he was legitimately impressed by him. He wasn't just doing wrestling announcer being impressed by someone. Uh, when he talked about Vader. And yeah, when Vader came to the U.S., it's like when you think of kind of Hogan era, you know, mid to late 80s American wrestling, you know, it's, it's you know, guys faced off standing with their feet planted throwing bombs or running crisscross from each other. But Vader threw bombs while moving straight forward, which was just something that almost nobody, especially not in either Crockett or the WWF, the kind of two big promotions at the time. Like nobody wrestled like that. Like nobody was just, you know, balling up their fists and moving forward and and refusing to be stopped. It really was like he, it it was kind of half a shoot in that way that always gets over because people can't help but believe it. It's like I said, uh, I think it was last week I brought up, you know, uh, Brock Lesnar, trying to get, or sorry, Samoa Joe trying to get Brock Lesnar to run the ropes and Brock Lesnar just kneeing him in the gut and how I thought that was just like one of the best things that I had seen in years because it took, you know, Brock Lesnar and it said, no, like this guy is real in a way that's very scary for other guys. And Vader definitely had that mystique. Maybe Vader, I don't want to say invented that mystique, but uh, Vader was one of the uh, most important figures in the history of that mystique. Yeah, he is the modern embodiment of that mystique. The like guy who is so much bigger and stronger than you that like something might happen and you just kind of have to accept that with the idea that he will also do pretty much anything in the ring you want him to if he respects you. Like when he debuts, he he runs through guys, but like 
there's uh, the big his first big feud. I would say it's Sting. We're not going to go uh, like match by match with Vader through the history of WCW. I, I really just want to talk about um, to be- begin by talking about his his par- uh, partnership, I guess you would call it, with Sting, where he really makes both he and Sting make each other look like the best possible versions of their roles. Uh, Sting, in particular, I think, really sells babyface in peril against Vader better than anybody's ever done that specific uh, like tool from their toolbox. He is like the best at it against Vader. Yeah, definitely. Vader's the one guy who could really get that Ricky Steamboat cell out of Sting. And that's always really what Sting couldn't do. What I think really kind of held him back from being that very kind of top tier worker really. But like Vader could bring it to Sting in a way that got him there, where he couldn't help but get there. And I mean, Sting really had three opponents who who made him. You know, it's it's Flair, it's Vader, and it's Cactus Jack, really. And so yeah, I would say Vader is yeah one of the three most important opponents in Sting's career. And Sting is probably one of the at least on the U.S. side one of the three most important you know opponents for in Vader's career. They'd probably be Sting, Ric Flair, and Shawn Michaels. Yeah, and for. For Sting in particular, he is the he. I mean, outside of the ability to really look like he's getting his ass kicked, is uh, such a hot, hot babyface. He's such a good guy that when he comes up against someone who is a bad guy and a bad man, it really works to make you want to root for Sting in a way that I think kids did when he was in his prime. But Vader is this great villain and it's something you don't get to see as much honestly in wrestling now outside of like authority figures because no one is given that much power within the context of a storyline yeah that's a good point and i think it's also true that like vader made sting really fire the fuck up which is like what which is what nobody in wrestling is a 10 out of the 10 great at right now like when sting fired up against Vader when he beat his chest and howled and started running faster and punching harder. It was so believable and it really made the audience feel like they had been on a journey with Sting, like Sting had been beaten down to where he almost could go no further and that they, through their cheering and their perseverance, had breathed life into him. And that's really what makes someone a babyface is the crowd feels that they have a connection with this character where there's an interplay of energy and, and Vader just perfectly brought that out in him. That's what makes him a, a great heel. And that's what great makes him a great monster. I mean, what we're, we'll get into this more next week. But like when you think of monster movies, it's like the characters in the monster movies don't have any personality. It's the monster who has all the personality in the movie. You know, and the monster has to get over the the dumb kids who just want to have sex in the woods or whatever. And Vader was excellent at being the monster. Uh, so when he had someone who could just beat his chest and fire up and jump at him as fast as as Sting could, you know, it was it was really a perfect marriage. Yeah, and I I also like the relationship between uh, it, because it's a different dynamic, but he does the same thing almost that he does with Sting with Cactus Jack, which is kind of surprising because Mick Foley at that point. Uh, had been a heel for a while. He had been a wild man for a really long time. And to see him go against Vader and Vader basically like beat him down so much that even Mick Foley, the like human, like wrecked machine, like (laughs) (laughs) uh, he, he brings out this like sympathy for Mick Foley that it takes like, Jim Ross basically spoon feeding Mick Foley, the person to the audience to get for him in WWF. Like Vader does it. And like, I mean, he does it. The storyline does take a long time, but he just fucks up Cactus Jack like two or three times. Oh yeah. hundred percent. When he, he gives him, is it the power bomb? He gives him on the ramp when they had the flat elevated ramp that went all the way to the ring. At one of the, yeah. He folds in it. Yeah. Half. And he also power bombs them yeah he power bombs them on the the side with they pull the mats up and he power bombs them he just destroys cactus jack and that's like what 
it, it he almost murders him to me like that's the closest thing it it really feels like you said before visceral there's this like real like oh my god i'm actually seeing something like i don't know if this guy's really hurt because this guy is so incredibly brutal that even if I knew this was fake, I don't know if he can fake it that much. Yeah, a hundred percent. Or you can say that you could, you know, I, be, you know, Vader had that that believability where it's like, well, I believe that he agreed to do this match in the dressing room, but it looked like the guy hit him in the face too hard earlier, and now he's pissed off and not cooperating. Like you could trick yourself into believing that in any Vader match. Yeah, and the thing is, is it feels different every time, and I think an important thing. Um, for Vader, actually, in particular, uh, there's two things that I think are particularly important for Vader uh, before he kind of gets thrown to the wolves uh, at the end of his WCW run are uh, Jesse Ventura and Harley Race. Uh, Jesse Ventura is the... Uh, we will eventually have episodes on both of these people, um, but Bobby Heenan is the best heel, I think, of all time. Jesse Ventura is the best heel commentator of all time. He is such a good storyteller for the story they wanted to tell for Vader. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And you were talking about Jim Ross earlier and how good Jr. was at describing Vader. It's funny, you know, that Ross and Ventura famously did not get along and didn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, Ross even said in his book basically that he thought Ventura got paid too much more than him, so he didn't care to put uh, Ventura over at all. So, uh, but, but Vader was the one thing where they seemed to be able to get on the same page. They just both recognized him as so undeniably good and were so good at just talking up what a dangerous force he was. And Tara does a great job with it when, uh, Jera leaves and Tony Schiavone takes over who in watching, especially the Vader matches, cause I went through and I watched most of the Vader matches from his WCW pay-per-view Vader matches from his WCW run. And Tony Schiavone also, he's less... Um, impressed as in awe of Vader, where like JR is like, oh man, this guy's such an athlete. And Tony Schiavone's like, holy crap, this guy is unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, Schiavone seems to have legitimate concern for the opponents. It's like you were saying earlier with the Cactus Jack. It's like every move he does, uh, there, there's, there's realistic concern that he has significantly hurt the other person. And, and Schiavone really, really communicates that well that that he was just not comfortable out there like there was also um i don't remember if it's jr or shivani but there's one of the uh the vader matches where literally every time vader goes to the announce table side of the ring the announcers talk about it and they're saying i'm not really very comfortable here i'm getting ready to bail out at any second because vader's right there i think it's true yeah, and i think it is shivani yeah because yeah, shivani is um and and through in the same way that um, a good character in, uh, and not to pour it on too heavy, but in a, a good slasher will make you want to like, the person who's commentating and like making jokes and stuff like that. Uh, a good example is um, for Scream, like the guys making the jokes about uh, all of the commentary about the killer are like an important part. And that's kind of what it feels like is happening with Ventura and, Shivani, they look like they're watching a bunch of people get like murdered basically and trying to figure out how to talk about it in a way that's like eases the burden that you the viewer have to have on you that oh my god i think he just broke that guy's face yeah it's like i always think of the build-up to the match when flair came back from the wwf they, they have the bit where uh before the pay-per-view flair it, it's like a mean gene meets flair at his house and Flair is like saying goodbye to his kids and kissing his wife. And him and me and Gene are in the limo together. And Gene is, is talking with him real serious, like, well, you know, you know what this guy is capable of, right, champ? I mean, you, you've seen what he's done to other people. And like they, they really are treating it like, like he's just not just a threat to Flair. Like, you know, what I mean? it's not just that he's like a threat to him in a wrestling sense. It's like that that he is putting him in so much jeopardy that he has to kiss his kids goodbye. Like it really is incredible. And especially for Ric Flair, who'd like done it all and been everywhere and fought every opponent and had every match and gone Broadway every night for 20 years or whatever, you know, but like this was someone new who could really, uh, it was, he, he could put the greatest wrestler of all time in jeopardy in a way that was totally new 
and, and totally believable. It was just perfect timing, really, in both of their careers to run into each other. I'll see you later tonight. I'll see Take you. care. Take care of yourself. Rick, come on. We've got to go. <sighs> Seems to me like there was so much emotion. Oh, they're worried, Gene. Of course they are. Whose family wouldn't be? You're worried. I am worried, but I'm worried for different reasons, I think. I knew what I was doing when I signed the contract, Gene. I gotta prove this to no one else but myself tonight. I've got a feeling this could be a rather long ride. Yeah. We're gonna party tonight, yeah! Just keep focused, here. keep focused. No pain, no pain, baby. And I think that's the pinnacle, as far as I'm concerned, of his career for a bunch of different reasons, but... Well, working with Ric Flair, that's not a bad pinnacle to your career. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. In one of the more, as a WWF, WWE fan, one of the best W, it almost feels like a WWF, WWE style match in the sense that like it's very theatrical and it's very like planned out in its own way. Like it's telling, it's quote unquote, telling a very specific story. And I think that's interesting Uh that's an interesting difference between Vader and a match with a guy like Vader and a guy like Ric Flair, as opposed to a lot of the main event level guys that weren't Ric Flair, let's say. Ric Flair allows you to actually tell a story because he's such a good wrestling actor. Like he really does, like we're kind of joking about it, but the like drive to the th- the the limo drive with mean gene is actually like well done it's not he's not fucking like i'm trying to think of an actor who hasn't molested somebody uh john ham let's say. like he's not like a, a like a a list actor or whatever but he's a good enough actor that it actually you are sold in the idea that this might be his last match at the very least it's crazy that they could even get you there because i mean like here's rick flair making his triumphant return like you know he's been doing the um flair for the golds or whatever but this is him finally getting back in the ring and uh yeah they, they instantly convince you somehow that this could be it for him like as if that's possible given the promotional momentum he has, you know, I mean, I guess that's just a triumph of wrestling storytelling and a triumph of having a really great heel is that even when you know that this guy is the hometown baby face, who's been the default champion for the last 15 years or whatever, you know, and and he, you know, that he's going to come in and he's going to get the title back from the heel. Who's been keeping it warm for him while he was away. That's how wrestling works. Like, you know, that's going to happen, but they still make you care and they still really, make you feel like something could happen either where Flair loses storyline wise or where something uh, outside of the storyline really bad happens to Ric Flair just because of the dangerousness of Vader. So it, it's just a perfect deal. I could really go on about it all night. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, the how hot the crowd is for the match and especially the ending because the ending is basically like this weird, he trips Vader basically like the, 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 running behind the guy and getting on all fours and then kind of having your buddy push except he like does the pushing is basically the way i would describe the ending but the crowd loses their fucking minds yeah and the pin he gives him too i think is really good i'm always like a real stickler i don't want to say stickler but um i i enjoy a good pin especially on a title change You're a connoisseur i'm a connoisseur of exactly of of, of uh realistic or not realistic but leveraged looking pins and yeah, just the way he he kind of chalk blocks him from behind and holds onto his leg and then kind of accordion folds him over himself. And it's this great moment of like where once again, it's just so believable that it's a bigger, heavier guy who's wrestling a match that's much longer than that guy is accustomed to. And suddenly this guy upends him and, you know, stacks his own weight on top of his shoulders. It's, it's a spectacular finish. And I think WWE over the last... 10 or 15 years has really made roll up finishes into kind of the biggest, like, eh, of course, a roll up, that's what they do, you know, whatever. But like, it, it's a spectacular roll up finish. It, it's just excellent. And it's, uh, it's helped a lot by, and this is, uh, 
the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is a Harley race. It's, it's helped out a lot by Harley races interference because he actually works as a vulnerability to Vader. Cause he is involved in a lot of the, like he helps Vader win. Right. But he also helps Vader lose in a way that Vader could not lose otherwise. No, and I think him taking the diving headbutt from Harley Race, who, I mean, probably should not have been doing a diving headbutt at that point in his life. But when he takes that diving headbutt from Harley Race right as they're going into the finish, it really is just a great setup. Like you said, it's, you know, the heels manager is supposed to be his strength because that's a man advantage. And it's, it's to use the old Batman line, it's just a perfect example of someone being hoisted by their own petard, you know? And, and that's really the essence of how the heel is supposed to lose. Like, the heel is supposed to lose on their ass. And, you know, even for, it, once again, a, a guy, a monster like Vader, shouldn't be able to go out on his ass. But they use the manager in order to, to get him, him, him there. And what's great about Vader is uh, he doesn't need Harley Race to talk, right? Like, he's a great promo for the monster heel like he's just like i'm gonna here comes the pain and shit like that like if you've ever seen um the bat dad scene from the south park episode the losing edge mr marsh you must be very proud of your son they worked really hard to get here chris and you know i don't like to really trash talk but i don't think denver has a chance oh well i'm sure some of the denver kids parents would disagree with you and oh yeah oh yeah south park is going down feel it on the you ain't got a chance, South Park! Here we go, Denver! Here we go! <laughs> Who is that? That's Tom Nelson, one of the Denver players' fathers. He goes to every game in that ridiculous outfit and usually drinks too much and gets into a fight. There ain't no way some little mountain kids can beat Denver! Not with my son on second base! Oh, it looks like we got some parental trash talking going on here. Mr. Marsh, any comment? Well, I think that there's a... Uh... Mr. Marsh? Who wants to hear from a Mr. Marsh? I am the ultimate Little League trash talking father. I am the bad dad! All right, Mr. Nelson, let's go. Come on. Bad Dad knows no fear. Bad Dad knows no pain. I want you, Marsh. I want you. They do a great job of tempering Vader's awesomeness, basically, with someone who is also awesome. But they, he, since he doesn't need the help, it's almost like putting too much on your plate. And sometimes it has a ten, it, it can tip over. And I think that's what works for Harley Race is he gives the baby faces a way to beat Vader without making Vader lose. He can lose like a heel and keep his monsterness. So it's a lot like, uh, like Brock Lesnar is with Paul Heyman. I mean, I know we keep coming back to comparing Vader to Brock Lesnar here, but they really are kind of in the same lineage where, you know, they say that there's two kinds of heels. There's the ass kicking heel and the chicken shit heel. I should give credit to uh, Ted DiBiase is the person I've heard it explained this way. But so there's the chicken shit heel and the ass kicking heel. And the ass kicking heel is always invariably going to become a baby face because he takes care of business and he doesn't take shit from anybody and he does what he wants. Think of Stone Cold Steve Austin. The ass kicking heel always turns into Or Braun Strowman. Exactly. Perfect example. The ass kicking heel always becomes a baby face. Braun, Braun Strowman is – we talk a lot about Brock Lesnar. Braun Strowman is the closest thing to Vader that I can see in terms of being a great wrestler, but continue. Sorry. But so when you have an ass kicking baby face or sorry, an ass kicking heel and you don't want them to turn baby face, what can you give them? You give them the manager and the manager is someone who, you know, looking at them makes you angry <laughs> like Harley race with his, you know, his, his perm all bleached out and his ugly suits or Paul Heyman with his, not anymore, but back in the day with his, you know, greasy, sad side hair pulled back into a disgusting ponytail. <laughs> like the manager really helped that ass kicking heel keep their heat and keep them from becoming a crowd favorite. So even though kind of Vader is an act who stood on his own two feet and didn't need anybody else to enhance him, like you said, he could kick, could have carried his own promos 100% and he could have found innovative ways to lose without a manager, I'm sure. But the manager helped them really keep the heat by just being, you know, an obnoxious element, both with the interfering during the matches and with, you know, cutting the obnoxious promo. So, like, in uh, Jen, in the early 95, uh, Vader has to kind of separate from Harley Race. I, I believe he gets into a car accident. Um, so Vader is kind of untethered from a lot of things at this point, And he's uh, feuding with Hogan. He's been feuding with Hogan for a couple of months at this point. And he's involved more or less in the Dungeon of Doom, which I 
Dave, can you talk about the Dungeon of Doom? I don't, I don't have it. <laughs> well, so the best explanation of the Dungeon of Doom that I've heard actually came from Kelvin, Kevin Sullivan, who booked it. So there you go. Um, but the way Sullivan likes to explain the Dungeon of Doom is when Hulk Hogan came to WCW, which was really kind of the the inheritor of the NWA legacy, he wasn't really comfortable with that style of wrestling because he knew the kind of like Northeast, you know, WWF style. And he was comfortable doing that and really kind of just, you know, building up monsters to fight him and then him doing his match against them. And you all know the whole Hogan formula. So uh, Sullivan says the Dungeon of Doom was his attempt to make Hulk Hogan comfortable, to give him something that didn't feel like he was in the NWA, where he had to think about like wrestling or things of that nature, where he could kind of just get lost in doing the Hogan gimmick and overcoming monsters. So it was put in place to to make Hogan very comfortable, um, but it didn't really serve Hogan very well because like, these characters weren't really over. Like being in the Dungeon of Doom didn't really give anybody any heat because they kind of cut their they cut their promos in this kind of brooding area that looked like it was part of the Legends of the Hidden Temple set. I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> yeah, right. It was very Nickelodeon. It was very early '90s Nickelodeon. Um, but yeah, they just didn't really have any real heat, and people generally didn't like them. And it, it was very dated at the time because it still had like the 1970s manager thing where like anybody would suddenly turn up and be in the Dungeon of Doom, um, you know, just kind of like a 1970s manager type scenario. So it just didn't it was it was a it was a device that didn't really have any integrity to it. <laughs> and it's super like you said, uh, the origin of that is in the idea that Hogan is this cartoon character that you have to like draw everything around. And it would, if you look at the era, they would have been so much better off. And I don't know if it would have been possible, but not fucking signing him. <laughs> they would have been so much better off because he takes away so much creative momentum. Hogan, I mean, uh -huh. takes away so much creative momentum from everything they were doing in terms of Sting, in terms of Vader, in terms of Flair, everything. And they wouldn't, if they could have signed him and not had to change all of their stories to accommodate him, it would have been fine. Like he was, he's a good, he's a good main event wrestler. There's no denying that he's a great wrestler. I don't like him as a person, but he's a great main event wrestler. You can have him in the main event, but the problem is they let him change everything and take away any person that he saw as a threat to him, either as a good guy or a bad guy. And I think that's what happens to Vader is like he does the reverse for a really long time. Hogan would have a best friend or a friend or whatever. And that friend would turn on Hogan and Hogan would fight them at a WrestleMania or an adjacent pay-per-view. They try to do this, the reverse with Vader. And here's the thing with Vader. He's not a good guy. <laughs> no, he's not even the guy. He is definitively a bad guy. Yeah, he is uh, to to use the the monster for the slasher movie uh, uh movie monster. He only in a fight with Freddy Krueger could you even consider Jason a babyface, right? Like, and there Hulk Hogan isn't Freddy Krueger. The only time you could see, quite frankly, Vader as a babyface is in a standalone feud with Ric Flair. The problem is, is that once they decided to do a feud, an actual feud with Ric Flair, where uh, Flair is the bad guy and Vader is the good guy, Hogan tries to like usurp that. And he takes away kind of what makes Vader a monster. He takes away that mystique of like, he might actually hurt somebody. It's like, well, Hogan, if Hogan's a good guy, he wouldn't want to be on the side of a guy that would hurt people. So that means he has to not be a monster. And if he's not a monster, he's barely a heel. Yeah, you know, it's almost like Hulk Hogan identified someone uh, who he didn't particularly like and want to work with and uh, made things really difficult for them. Thankfully, after he leaves uh, WCW, because of all this bullshit, all of this, like, being, for lack of a better term, held down by somebody who has a seat of power, he goes to WWF and everything is smooth sailing from then on. Right, Dave? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that he was really one of the smoothest political operators in WWF history. I mean, that's why he had such a long, successful run there. Yeah, and that's why he's in the Hall of Fame now. Um, Oof. 
Hopefully they'll get him in there before he dies. I, I yeah. really hope they do. That's a yeah. personal one for me. Yeah, that's a shoot. That's us shooting. We really hope he gets yeah. in there before. Um, no, but he comes to the WWF. And I'll tell you what, as a fan of the WWF, I was really fucking excited. And I'm sure as a fan of Jim Cornette, so were you. Yeah, 100%. I, I thought that that was excellent. I remember I remember his introduction, actually. I remember the Royal, the first Royal Rumble that he was in. I used to have that on uh, VHS, actually. Yeah, I, uh, Dave and I both, uh, I don't know how much Dave loves Camp Cornette, but Camp Cornette is one of my two or three favorite heel stables ever. It's just like a really well done pre-Heart Foundation, Heart Foundation. And, uh, and Vader's kind of like the... I don't want to say the crown jewel, but he's the like the bruiser that keeps the the he's like almost like the engine in a weird way that like allows that to be a stable and not just like a collection of mooks. Yeah, exactly. He he is the main event threat that they have, because as you see, like if you look at the Attitude Era or if you look at a lot of the kind of subsequent factions that have been done, no faction works unless there's at least one member who's a legitimate threat to the world heavyweight title. Yeah, even if- and, and he really gave them that in a way that, say, the British Bulldog had good matches with Shawn Michaels, but he wasn't a consistent real threat to whoever the champion was. Yeah, and, and Vader at the beginning, like he basically writes off Gorilla Monsoon off of WWF television. And he does so in a way that's, and it goes back to what he did with Anoki and what he did with Tom Sink, basically. Uh, and a lot of different guys, uh, he makes it look realistic that he's actually fucking up Gorilla Monsoon. Like you really don't know if he's that, like if he's obviously when it's on television, you know, it's fake. 100%, but he still creates the, he's still very, uh, he still does a great job creating the illusion that what he's doing is not safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think that's what he, in his own way, brings a lot of edge to the attitude, uh, like the pre-attitude era WWF. He is one of the first characters that feels like, and this is not a coincidence, an NWA character. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, they had, this is in the era too of like Severin and Shamrock, and them actually trying to bring in some shoot fighters. And I always thought that both in the WWF and afterwards and kind of Japanese indie promotions that like Shamrock and Vader were really each other's best opponents in the WWF um, because they could both bring out the realness in each other. Like when you saw Ken Shamrock in the ring, even with like The Rock or Triple H, like he had good matches with those guys, but he always seemed like he was holding back. Like I said at the beginning about Vader, a real fighter moves forward they don't stand there toe to toe they mm -hmm. don't run crisscross they move forward and when vader and shamrock were in the ring they were both moving forward mm -hmm. and i, I think uh, as a quick aside uh we will eventually be doing an episode of owen hart uh, the only other guy that actually could kind of do that but didn't was owen hart like he that's why he worked well with ken shamrock is owen and, and he worked well with around vaders because he could actually like look like a fighter even though owen hart was one of the more pro wrestling pro wrestlers of all time yeah he definitely did a lot of the kind of british slash calgary style tumbling yeah um so yeah everything's going great uh he's has a pretty good debut <laughs> um you know does some good stuff and then he runs into Shawn michaels and to be clear this is not like jesus Shawn michaels this is like jesus Shawn Michaels. <laughs> Jesus, comma, Shawn Michaels, exclamation point. Yeah, yeah, this was this was kind of Shawn Michaels at the height of Shawn Michaels. And once again, like we were talking about with, you know, Hogan before, this is someone who maybe did not have any interest in working the style that Vader worked. And so, so uh, because of that, you know, didn't want to see this person in the main event, just legitimately, you know, wanted to make things difficult for this person. Yeah, and he has he has one really famous match with Vader uh, at SummerSlam, and um, in what should have been one of the best matches of the era, because young Shawn Michaels, like athletic prime Shawn Michaels, is like messy level athletic talent. He is flying. It really looks like an artist painting on a canvas when he's really going. Yeah. And, Vader was the perfect guy to facilitate a story. Like he's the perfect, the perfect Shawn Michaels opponent. And Shawn Michaels spits in his face, basically. Yeah, I mean, we talked before about like 
Vader and two of his great opponents being Sting and Ric Flair, it's like, well, what is Shawn Michaels as a main eventer? He's kind of a combination of Sting and Ric Flair, you know? Um, so, so he really fit the mold as someone who just, they should have, they should have feuded for a year and they should have made tons and tons of money together. But they didn't because Shawn Michaels didn't like him and, and which was kind of understandable. But I also think that Vader kind of never got the stink of Hulk Hogan off of him. Like that cartoony Hulk Hogan, like going through the meat grinder of Hulk Hogan and being stripped of all of your like character is something that happened to give you an idea, even to Vader, who is one of the great characters in the history of wrestling. Like he could not survive having his mystique completely drained and presumably drank with like blood by Hulk Hogan. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely someone who I think you could say that, you know, he, I don't want to say his spirit was broken, but definitely his self-confidence was really injured by his interactions with Hogan and to a lesser extent, maybe even Flair a little bit, but definitely with Michaels where, you know, he had been someone where he had a legitimate, you know, he had a legitimate jocks confidence in himself. Like he was an NFL level lineman and you, you don't get good at legitimate sport without a certain degree of understanding of how good you are. And I think part of what made Vader so good and part of what allowed him to not hold back in the ring and be so real is that he believed in himself and he thought legitimately that, that he was great. And he probably thought that if it was all real, he'd be the champion too, <laughs> you know? And I think that his interactions with Hogan and Michaels really took that away from him. They really ate away at his confidence and he really couldn't be the same Vader. And at the same time, he's getting to be an age where, you know, being 350 plus and athletic is going to get more and more difficult every single day. And I think that combination of, you know, eroded confidence and, and the, you know, losing that step of athleticism as many people do around that period in their life. I mean, you know, he, that's how he ends up at the, you know, maybe Vader time's over. Maybe I'm just a big fat piece of shit. I think that, you know, there's, there's a, those interactions with Michaels and Hogan and just getting a little older, there's a clear vector just right towards that kind of, you know, down and out, not believing in himself, just not capable of being the same Vader anymore. Yeah. And that's the best way to put it. He wasn't capable of being the same Vader. Yeah. So uh, I think we can end there um, for the most part. We're going to come back to Vader a couple of times in the history of the show. I think so. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's a favorite of both of ours and obviously a topic that we could both, I mean, like you said, we're not going to dive deep into all of his matches, but I mean, I I would like to do that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) And we wanted to, uh, because he's, we did an entire episode on him. He's clearly, this is not a question like bash at the beach where it's like, do you have to watch the entire thing? You can't watch Devader's entire history, but I think uh, we wanted to both highlight a match. Uh, that we think you need to watch if you want to understand the history of wrestling. Um, I, we're both picking from the same promotion. Uh, I am picking the Sting match that we mentioned earlier, which is from 92. It's a, the Great American Bash, uh, 92. He and Sting basically have the quintessential, like, and you would know better than me, but it almost feels like what you were describing in terms of the, like, fighting spirit and stuff like that. Uh, of a Japanese style match, but with the um, an Ameri- two American style work or one American style worker and Vader. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sting's I, fire in that match is tremendous. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah, and I think it's just a really well constructed match that, in the in a similar way to the Ric Flair match, uh, tells a really great story and makes Sting look so good. And Vader too, but especially Sting looks like he had the match won until the uh, spoiler alert because it's you know <laughs> years old. Uh, Vader they, they Vader wins, but I'm not gonna tell you how. But like the ending, he has him until the end, or he looks like he has a really great chance until the end in a way that like he probably shouldn't because he's Vader, <laughs> and Sting is like Sting makes you really think that. At the beginning of the match, he had no chance. And through his will, he has created an opportunity for himself to beat Vader. Yeah, it's a great match. I could not agree more. Uh, the, the match that I'm going to recommend from WCW is that Ric Flair match uh, from Starcade 93. Uh, Ric Flair's career versus uh, Vader's WCW title. Like I was saying before, I just think the finishing sequence of this match is incredible. I mean, the whole match is incredible. It's, you know, 21 minutes long, which is kind of that... I don't know. As Steve Austin always talks about like 18 to 22 being kind of that like sweet spot for, you know, having a match that doesn't feel long, but still has plenty of time to tell a really complete story. 
They definitely, you know, they get it all in there. Ric Flair has the Ric Flair match. He takes all the Ric Flair bumps and does all the Ric Flair moves, but it still has a very unique uh, story in which the stakes really do feel much higher than normal. Like I said earlier, you know, you have kind of the greatest wrestler of all time in there coming back, uh, you know, his first chance to really wrestle for a promotion where he's the hometown favorite. So it's like, well, of course, you know what the finish is, uh, but the journey there is really, really great. And uh, just to throw something from Japan out there, why the heck not? Uh, you should also just uh, just Google uh, Inoki versus Vader. It's like a four and a half minute clip. I think it still exists out there, you know, on uh, sites that host videos. Uh, <laughs> so, but uh, I definitely recommend checking that out too, just to see like what we were talking about at the top of the show, just that that huge introduction and just really putting someone over, smashing someone over, as they used to say, just just so strong. And I, one more note, uh, when Dave says hometown hero, he means that literally. It is in Ric Flair's adopted hometown of North uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And he that is the hottest crowd I can think of in an American, for an American show outside of, or it's probably equal to, but it's a much smaller venue in terms of how it feels. Uh, the Allstate Arena at Money in the Bank 2011 between John Cena and CM Punk. It's like Punk. Yeah. that level of just like the crowd is moving with, and Vader did this a lot. There's a match, a triple threat match. I, I'm, I think it's fall brawl between um, boss man, who is the guardian angel at this point, I believe, <laughs> uh, or no, he's the boss. He's just the boss. The, boss. the man who that believes works. in law and order. Um, <laughs> Sting and Vader, and it's a triple threat elimination match. So it's Vader versus Boss Man. And then Vader gets a dirty-ish win against Boss Man, or a pretty dirty win against Boss Man. And then he fights Sting. And the way that the match works is there's a 15-minute time limit, and then there's a five-minute overtime, and then there's a sudden death. And the way sudden death works is uh, if you fall, it's over. And Vader falls... And the crowd, like, as a collective unit, jumps up at the same time. It's one of the coolest visuals I can remember seeing in a wrestling match. Like, Vader is, I love, he might be my favorite wrestler of all time. Like, I know we said this at the beginning, but, like, this entire episode has made me so happy to talk about Vader. Um, so, yeah, uh, this, uh, thanks, Dave. This was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, you, oh, definitely. Uh, you have a thinky? Do you? Yeah, yeah, I have a quick thinky because I haven't given any uh, recommendations the last couple of weekends and I was kind of expressing some frustration with the uh, quality of podcasts we were getting post-WrestleMania. It definitely kind of felt like off-season content to me. Um, but I actually reached out there and I started listening to a new podcast because I was kind of dissatisfied with some stuff uh, out there. And if you are kind of into old-school wrestling history, particularly like Southern old-school wrestling history, you should really, really uh, check out the uh, Ron Fuller Studcast. It's so interesting. Like, this is a guy who was in wrestling from the 60s through the 90s, and the format's really interesting because he tackles his career chronologically, like starting with his father's career, like starting with how the whole Fuller-Welch family got into wrestling and, and carrying you basically, like, all the way through to today. So it's a really interesting format. But I want to direct people at the four episodes that he did uh, last month, I think it was. Like I said, I'm just discovering this show. But they, they were about the Tampa Snake Pit, which was um, – that was famously where Eddie Graham had all the shooters. So, like, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was Eddie Graham. It was Bob Roop. It was Jack Briscoe. Uh, it was uh, famously uh, Hiro Matsuda, you know, who broke Hulk Hogan's leg. And uh, so Ron Fuller was part of that. And basically the Snake Pit – was a gym where these guys would work out and train and shoot with each other to become like legitimately better wrestlers. But it was also where they would send either marks who uh, wanted to be wrestlers. It's where they would send them to teach them a lesson that they weren't material, that they weren't tough enough. Or if there was like a journalist who tried to write an expose or, or tried to, you know, cast uh, shame upon wrestling in the newspaper, they'd say, you know, we'll come down to our gym and we'll show you what it's all about. And, uh, <laughs> They would torture them. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, really interesting. And it tells you a lot, uh, both both good and bad, about like what Eddie Graham really stood for and believed in in the world of professional wrestling. Because, I mean, he's not really someone who we talk about much in the current dialogue, but he's someone who really kind of influenced the, 
the wrestling world at the very end of the territory era and kind of transitioning into the national era. Cause I mean, he was a mentor for Bill Watts. He was a mentor for, um, you know, Dusty Rhodes. So he really was an influential mind. And it's, it, these episodes really kind of help you understand what kind of person he is. And just also the stories about torturing people in the sugar hold are, are really stinking interesting. Um, like I said, there's four snake pit episodes. I especially recommend the first two though. The first one just kind of introduces the whole idea and you kind of learn about the characters and the second one specifically focuses on the Sugar Hold, which is a hold that came to the Tampa Snake Pit by way of the Wigan Snake Pit and uh, was a especially uh, fun way to torture people. So check out Ron Fuller's Studcast. Check out the Snake Pit episodes, especially one and two. That sounds awesome. Uh, I will definitely check those out. Uh, so did you have anything you wanted to plug uh, of your own or... Uh, no, just follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Always check out the Wrestling Estate. I'm always in on the weekly roundtables. I haven't written a column over there in a while, uh, not since WrestleMania, really. Uh, but hopefully I, I should here in, in the next week or two. I really should write something. So uh, keep your eyes peeled on the Wrestling Estate and follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Sounds great. Um, so like I mentioned earlier in the show, Juice Make Sugar is basically back. Um we will be unveiling a redesign in the next couple of weeks. I will be announcing it on the show. Um, and you can follow me at, at the Nickster. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. Uh, you can check us out at, uh, how wrestling explains that podbean.com, or you can go on iTunes, uh, to rate or review us. Um, please do that. We know we never ask. We never ask. You should do it. Please rate and review us. Yes. Uh, yeah. Five stars, five stars or four. Four is okay, but we prefer five. Whatever you're comfortable with, you know. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, my mom always said, if you don't know something nice to say, don't say anything at all. You guys intend on shocking 20,000 people in the Gund Arena and millions across the world by ending Shawn Michaels' boyhood dream in his championship reign. I don't care if there's 50,000 stinking people out there. It's going to make no difference. Shawn Michaels, we proved a lot of things. We proved that Vader can pin you for a three count because he did it last month. We proved that he can beat you up because he did it on Raw. And now, tonight at SummerSlam, we're going to prove that Vader's going to beat you when it counts. And that's for the World Wrestling Federation title. I promised last month Camp Cornette would win. I'm promising tonight that Vader is going to beat Shawn Michaels. Shawn, when he grabs you around the neck and you try to talk, then your voice is going to sound like Peter Frampton's electronic kazoo and the instrumental break. And do you feel like we do? And it's going to be a bad ride from there. Because one way or another, we're going to come out on top tonight. Vader's beating Shawn Michaels once and for all. I guess we're fixing to find out if it is Vader time. Back to you guys at ringside. Oh, it's Vader time, all right. What time I've been waiting for, I'll tell you that.